SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 57 with guest Karen Lopez. Welcome. Our guest today is Karen Lopez. Karen is a Senior Project Manager and Architect at Info Advisors. She has 20 plus years of experience in project and data management on large multi-project programs. Karen specializes in the practical application of data management principles. She's a Microsoft SQL Server MVP, blogger and speaker, and she wants you to love your data. So welcome, Karen. Thanks, Greg. So, as I do with everyone, uh, get you to tell us, how did you ever come to be involved with SQL Server? Gosh, I have to think back on that one. Um, definitely, my background uh, primarily as a data architect or a process architect um, mm-hmm. meant that I ended up a lot of times um, practically being an accidental DBA. Uh, at least, yep. I, uh, I, I'm one of those data architects that's not so common that can take a data model, a logical model, run it through physical design, and I always insist on generating first cut DDL to make sure that Mm -hmm. my models can actually be used on a real life project. So that definitely ties me closer to uh, databases than most data architects, I'd say. And, And then you start learning a little bit more about the operations of DBMSs and Helping out. I also do some volunteer work for not for profits to help them mm-hmm. uh, manage their servers and their databases, and that also got me more involved in SQL Server because that seemed to be a very common choice for them. Mm. And so you've been working with it a long time now? Yes, I'd with say so. With SQL Server specifically? Yeah. Yes, I'd say so. That's why yeah. my profile, I just say 20 plus years because I decided that was time to stop counting. <laughs> I can I can relate directly to that. Exactly. That's good. Listen, one of the first topics uh, that uh, I really want to start discussing with you is around data modeling. And mm-hmm. one of the complaints I hear all the time in the SQL Server environment is that that's probably one of the biggest holes in the platform is the lack of tooling to help with modeling. And so I'm just interested right. in, do you use any specific tools? Um, Well, primarily I use what my clients use since I'm in the service Mm -hmm. industry. Um, But that means over the years I've used tools, um, uh, CA Irwin Data Modeler, uh, Embarcadero's ER Studio, a little bit of uh, Sybase, which is now SAP's Power Designer. Uh, Those Mm -hmm. seem to be the top three anyway. Uh, What's your feelings on each of those? Well, so I enjoy all of them. The thing I tell my clients, and a lot of people ask me, you know, what's the best data modeling tool? Well, Mm. because I believe strongly that data modeling should never just be just um, sort of an analytical exercise, a theoretical exercise that uh, some modelers position it as, even though that's incredibly important, and that's actually where my Mm. passion lies, is that 
I still need to have models be usable and we need to remove obstacles from them. So I'm not a fan Mm -hmm. of data modelers that do a pretty data model and then send it around as embedded diagrams in a PDF and tell the DBAs and developers, do your best to make your database match this. Because of that, I want to do round-trip data modeling, which is Mm -hmm. you you have uh, an inspiration for a requirement, you model it in a conceptual, logical, design it into a physical model, uh, build something from it or parts of it even, uh, and then put that in an implementation. might not even be a relational database. And then as requirements change or are better understood, I want to go back to the model and make the changes there and run it through the process again. So because of mm-hmm. that, I want that uh, traceability, uh, what I, I call all of this model-driven development, then I think the best modeling tool for someone to use is the one that best fits your physical environment while also supporting you know, your needs for analysis and requirements and to support the modeling mm-hmm. process. And that's why I tend to use enterprise class data modeling tools because a lot of either free or lower end tools are really just diagramming tools and they don't really well support that round trip model driven development. Hmm. What's your feeling on the quality of DDL that comes out (laughs) of any of the higher end tools? Well, it sure has changed over the decades. Mm -hmm. I remember one of the first modeling tools I used generated DDL um, and it didn't support specific data types of the target DBMS, and it generated tables and columns only in alphabetical order. Lovely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and that meant that the DDL that was generated was almost 100% rewritten by hand, and it was very painful yeah. purpose. So that was quite a while ago. Um, right now, my goal on all my projects is to have the DDL that I can generate from these tools support all or substantially all the features that I need in target DDL. And that is limited to the types of things that come out of models. So for instance, mm. um, you know, my modeling, so these enterprise class tools support not just tables and columns and data types, but um, the file stores, which is the generic term, um, yeah. the, uh, you know, indexes, uh, partitions, all the major components of and objects, but what the data modeling tool vendors have done over the last few years is give modelers the chance to extend the DDL generation either by uh, actually customizing via a template how the DDL generation happens or Hmm. scripts to be able to do those things. Um, It's very rare now that there's something I need to do in the DDL that I can't do just automatically in the modeling tools. And I think there's this fear and also a lot of uh, urban legend going around that the DDL that comes out is just not usable when a lot of it is. um, One of the things that's hard to explain to people is people who pick up a data modeling tool are often overwhelmed by just the complexity of it all because it does support, you know, 50 different ways. I'm exaggerating here, but several different ways on how you'd like your DDL to be generated. Like it's not enough to just hit next, next, next in the wizard and generate the DDL Mm. and then say, you know, it's not doing what I want it to do. Yeah, no, indeed. And the, uh, I suppose the, the main thing is that so many of them have so many configurable options that you, you could have uh, a lot of control of over how that comes out anyway. Exactly. Uh, in the tools I use, often thousands of options can be set, and then you save mm. those as a setting. So, for instance, I'll have different profiles for when I'm generating from the same data model. 
DDL for the development environment versus QA and production just because there are different things that we might, you know, want to do based on how those environments differ. Mm. And I suppose at a, a bigger picture level, one of the questions, uh, I, I see a lot of argument in sites now about whether people should be in designing a data model uh, or whether they should be designing an object model oh. and uh, sort of at which end of of that spectrum do you tend to lie? <laughs> well, so as a, a long-term data model, definitely in the data model side, but that doesn't mean object models shouldn't be done. Where I've seen, so if by object model you mean things like entity framework and, and code first and those well, types of things? Well, I mean, if I take a, maybe take a specific example. If I have something like uh, an object I want where I have flights and passengers, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe I have a flight object and I have a passenger object, but then I want to model the many-to-many -many relationships. So I've got which passengers are on which flights. Now, right. presumably at the object layer, I want to have a flight object with a passenger's collection right. as a, an attribute of it, right. and I want to have a, a passenger collection with a flight's um, right. uh, collection as well. But at mm -hmm. the database level, I probably want to have a flights table, a passenger's table, and maybe some sort of flight manifest that says right. who's on what flights. Yeah. So I suppose the, the question, is there sort of a, an end that you prefer to start at? I mean, some people see it as uh, the database as just a place that they put their objects Right. Uh, the concern I have with that is it does tend to lead to a whole lot of little information silos. Mm -hmm. uh, or alternately, you start with the sort of the data modeling in, but that's usually not where the developers want to start. Ed, and you're right on both sides. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, my work is on uh, designing models and databases for the persistence of that data. So one of yeah. my taglines of Love Your Data is about how data lasts much longer than code. So the object mm -hmm. model typically is you know, specific to a process or to an application or a function, whereas the persistence layer, layer um, I'm thinking about that data as we store it. And yeah. that often has uh, much more complex requirements. Uh, you know, and you talk about, and I have done very large data models and designs for just the example you talked about for traveler-related mm. industries. And, you know, that simple example, all examples are overly simple, which means, you know, they're terribly wrong. But, you know, I happen to know that just that one little bit that you talked about is several, several tables. And mm. someone programming a specific function, such as keeping track of, you know, did that passenger actually fly on that flight for the award yep. of frequent flyer miles in an object mm -hmm. model would look completely different than you know, my persistence model because I'm trying to keep track of all the data. So not just that they reserved at that flight level, but also uh, did they actually fly? Um, were they, was another flight substituted? Was it on an airline they could no longer earn the frequent flyer miles on? And it gets really complex. So one of the reasons why developers want to lead toward, lean towards this object model is that it, they, need, they want to focus on the one problem they're trying to solve, whereas data modelers mm -hmm. and architects architects are trying to combine all of those requirements in a way that will meet all of those needs. And that's where this natural sort of uh, conflicting point of view comes from. Yeah. And for the answer, I, I like there's no one wrong answer, right? There's no one right answer yeah, no, and there's no, not a wrong answer. Yeah, I, I like what you were saying about the life of the data. And uh, yeah. because one of the discussions I often have is that uh, 
generally in most organizations, I think the data is the most valuable thing the organization owns. And I think it usually outlives generations of applications. Uh, most most large organizations I see, the data just gets morphed from one shape to another. Right. Uh, but, it, but it often lives on and on and on. That's right. So I work with data, you know, even at utilities that's hundreds of years old. Infrastructure mm. that was put into place uh, hundreds of years ago. Addresses that were established long before then. Um, buildings that are older than that, right? And so every time someone, even before the computing era, people made decisions on how to store that data. And I see a lot of times on my projects that, again, that natural differing point of view of uh, we compensate developers for getting stuff done. You know, even the Agile Manifesto says just do enough, do just enough. And do it faster because we're taking too long to do all this design and stuff. I totally mm-hmm. agree with that sentiment. But the data, you know, there are destructive decisions that you can make about the data that can never be undone. And so the perfect example of that is if you have address data that right now is persisted in all of its tiny components, you know, street number, street number suffix, street mm-hmm. name, street suffix, prefixes, and you decide for your application that you're now just going to combine those all into address line one, address line two, et cetera, you can never automatically undo that back to the finer level of granularity. There are ways of trying. And the example I use is with people's names. You know, Mm. my quote middle name, which is a series of specialized names because of the culture I come from, you know, combine that all together as one middle name. So there's about six words in it. You combine that mm-hmm. all together, you could never accurately parse that back out again. So, yeah, I know. Certainly most of my Spanish friends, are, yeah, it's a good yeah. example where I just look at that and go, when I see their full name and how it's really done, that there is just no way you, you could right. parse that or try and work out how to put it back together. And yet people will tell me that they absolutely could, that they could run it through mm-hmm. a parsing algorithm and, and you know, of a list of valid names and somehow figure out that... Uh, you know, through the prepositions that are in there and spaces and hyphens and everything that they could get it back. And yeah, you're I, just guaranteed to get it wrong. Right. <laughs> you know? Exactly. I mean, that, that is all you would be doing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's a, it's a great example of something that it, it is, is just a very, very hard problem. It's the same as when I have components of names. I, I would never presume that I know how to put a name together. Mm-hmm. I like to ask the customer or the web, you know, whoever, like, what is their actual full name as well? You know, not right. not not just components of names, because I mean, you just cannot assume uh, how how that would be assembled from that. That's right, and it's contextually sensitive. So, mm. how someone from an Asian culture thinks of what their full name is varies based on whether they're doing that locally. You know what? They, yeah. You know the order that names appear is different in Asia, in parts of Asia, than it is in North America or Europe. Same name, it's just how it's presented. And then you get to things like Dutch names where, you know, the van, mm-hmm. van is not supposed, you're not supposed to alphabetize on that. That's a preposition. Yeah. And the phone book would be full of Vs. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yet, when we take their names in, in other parts of the world and we do that, they have to know to change how they tell people what their last name is so they can yeah. look it up. 
Yeah, no, indeed. And look, the, the Asian one, yeah, it's a good example, obviously, where family name is considered to be the most important thing. And, right. and then it sort of works down from there. In fact, it's interesting when you mentioned addresses, because they do exactly the same thing with addresses. Yep. Uh, they actually, they start with, you know, what country, yep. you know, what province or region, you know, what street, what building, and then eventually the person. Uh, we actually do it the other way around by default. But yep. uh, again, it's an interesting one where if you had not stored the components, mm -hmm. you, you could not reassemble it in a different order if that was required for a different destination. That's right. And and so, you know, this whole concept of what we consider really basic, easy information is actually some of the most difficult things to get right because of regional differences, cultural differences, um, transliteration differences, all of these things. And mm. having these discussions with people who've been told on a sprint, they've got two days to code it all, and yet I yeah. have all these questions. You know, they're saying, just give me first name, middle name, last name. Yeah. Well, that's fine, except that, you know, our first deployment's going to be in Singapore. So do we want to yeah. get it right in any way? Mm. And, and then the I'll other... Even even in a country like Australia, I mean, yep. uh, again, I'll get sort of, you see people first name, given name, last or first name, middle name, last name. Yeah. But but then things like uh, which of those are required fields. Now, exactly. um, there, there's actually a standard here in Australia that's evolving, but it basically says that given, it actually says you should be using given names and family name. Mm -hmm. um, but the given name is the only required field because we actually have a whole bunch of people in the community only have a single name. That's right. So lots of there's, there's so more than one culture. About. Yeah. Yeah. And then I try to, you know, I'm trying to write rules and people are trying to write data quality rules. They really, you know, people do want the data to be right. And I'll get a requirement along the lines of, you know, uh, family names should be at least three characters long. Mm -hmm. But then there are entire cultures where uh, names are one or two characters long. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, NG is a yeah. very common Asian name. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, a lot of times uh, the data model I might produce that is trying to anticipate international rules, uh, it seems so overly complex to my developers and my DBAs. And I have to tell them, this is another one of my taglines, is if you want to make the data model simple, go out and make the world simple and then come back yep. and we'll make the data <laughs> model simple. <laughs> yeah, in fact, one one of the ones I loved when the people were discussing spatial data, they were talking about uh, all the different modeling uh, schemes that they had inside SQL Server, and uh, that's yeah. all good. But there are areas in the U.S., for example, where they simply legislated that something was a different shape to what it is. Yes. <laughs> and then you go, um, <laughs> I can't deal with that. You know? Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, the the real world intervenes sometimes. Yeah, and it just it, it gets quite bizarre. What What are the most common mistakes you find with data modeling? Um, wow, they run such a gamut. So um, I said in my bio I like the practical application of data management. So a lot of times I'm sitting between, uh, on a project between the traditional data modelers who mm -hmm. want to stop everything and build the perfect data model, maybe go solve their, their company's master data management pro problem, mm -hmm. uh, set up a taxonomy and an enterprise glossary. And meanwhile, I'm sitting with the developers in the DBA in the middle of a sprint, and we don't have time to wait for no, all of that's that. Right. Um, These first so, guys are the ones that have projects that are never complete. Right? That's right. So, that's right. Yeah. And so trying to find that balance of doing the right thing for data, as well as I also then get the 
you know, from the other side. You know, we need to massively denormalize this or, you know, you need to just have a name field and we'll just solve this first name, middle name, last name thing. We'll just have a name field and I have to fight against that, um, you know, and, and trying to find that balance. So the I think the real biggest mistakes are trying to find the balance between preserving and protecting the data, loving the data, mm-hmm. and getting a project wrong. So almost everything that I find that's a mistake or that is related to that plus just this general unfamiliarity. Um, It used to be that I supported projects where people were just building something that only worked locally for them. And I'm finding those Mm -hmm. days are pretty much gone. So even if, uh, this would be very common for my U.S. clients, they'd say, we have no foreign customers. So we're not going to support any foreign addresses or foreign telephone numbers. Um, we don't do business outside the U.S., and yet customers have this way of moving away when they owe you money and you still want to contact them or mm-hmm. visiting the United States and they still want to buy something for you. And I think the days of being able to say that we don't need to support any of these wacky international things are pretty much gone. And you throw yeah. in the fact that you know commerce you know, and the Internet doesn't really have borders, even though we have to deal with yeah. those things. Um so I guess that is, you know, the biggest mistakes are just modeling to the requirements that you know and not to the ones that you're actually going to have to support. That's one what, of my what role do you see uh, standards uh, having around these sort of things? So I'm just interested in your thoughts on uh, like coding standards or any of those sorts of things. Because again, I see people coming up with their own variants of things that there are actually already ISO standards for. Yeah, so standard's kind of a strong word. I um, I like the word patterns. Mm-hmm. Things. Um, so I use a lot of patterns. There's There are several data modeling pattern, patterns. There are books for those. There's also um, what I call industry standard data models, uh, which mm-hmm. are usually sector specific. So I work specifically with one with retail. They're in utilities, insurance, healthcare. Those have been coming along just like gangbusters in the last few years because organizations got together, even competitors, and said it's really tough to share information with our supply chain because we don't have a standardized way of looking at data. So from from my point of view, those standards, um, which really are more of patterns because there's not much to enforce them, uh, have really – they've changed the way modeling and design works because now you're doing more tailoring of a giant body of knowledge of standards about data to tailoring them and making them work. And and I call it more of forensic data modeling, that you're going to a pattern Mm -hmm. model. It's just like working with a package. You're going to a data model or a package and trying to figure out how does that work and how can we make that work for us while still preserving this benefit of being able to share data in a very standardized way. Mm. What about richness of data types? Do you tend to use... I, I suppose one of the questions I've got is I see a lot of people doing modeling and they use, for example, SQL Server 2012 basically like it's a newer version of 2000. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just interested to what degree do you let yourself get into newer data types and things? Oh uh, Well, so there's this kind of myth that, you know, if you just use the most common denominator features of something, at any point in time you could take your whole application change databases, which really the difference between SQL Server 2000 and 2012 is there's a lot of substantial differences in data Mm. types and functionality and all of those things. 
that you could just rip out your DDMS and replace it with another one because you use these really common denominator features. And I have yet in my experience to see that actually be painless. So it's kind of the same thing about the reason software vendors say that they don't use primary keys or foreign keys in their design. It's so that they can support many DDMSs. Um, and I, I don't really believe in that that much is that you know, pretty much mm. the foreign key index or constraint syntax is very, very similar across many uh, target DBMSs, even mm. substantially different ones. And so I do make use of the data types and the features where I can see a clear cost benefit and risk reason. So one example in SQL Server 2012 is the advent of sequences. Right, those haven't yep. been in SQL Server until this version, and yet it's very common for me to use those in DB2 and in other DBMSs. And so I, you know, I'm happy to see that in SQL Server because there are cases where one would want to make use of those. And where we needed those in prior versions of SQL Server, we kind of had to roll our own uh, solution, which didn't work out mm. that well. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you you could have emulated it to a degree. That's yeah, what I mean by roll your sure. own, yeah. right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, so now I'm happy to have that because I'm familiar with the use cases and, and most people who have only worked with SQL Server don't see them as adding that much value because they never had them before and they weren't working with other DBMSs. So they don't understand, you know, why would I use a sequence instead of the identity property, you know, an identifier column? And, mm. you know, I talked to them about the fact that, well, with the identity property, you can only have one per table. Whereas with sequences, yeah. because it's a completely separate object from the table, it's not. SQL Server doesn't even know how you're going to use sequences. It's mm. not. Limit, it's not tied to a table, so uh, you could now have several of them. If you had, need to have a bunch of document numbers or something in a table or status codes or something, or status numbers in there, um, you know, it gives you some flexibility and the fact that it works well with doing a more complex transaction uh, because. You could go get all the sequences you needed before you recorded that data. And there's just all these great new use cases that we could do. So mm. I would make use of those in SQL Server, even though they're brand new. Yeah, no, no, that's that's really good. The one of the I suppose one of the questions that comes up is that I think refactoring databases yeah. is still really, really tough. And um, one of the things I was interested in, I remember a couple of years back, I think it was Scott Amblin was his name, um, uh, produced a database, uh, database refactoring book. And I yep. thought, this is great. I love the fact that someone was actually writing on that topic. Mm -hmm. However, uh, as soon as I got into the contents of his book, unfortunately, you just sort of feel you immediately see this lowest common denominator approach. Yeah. And so, for example, things that could be calculated columns, he would uh, end up generating triggers, for example, yeah. and so on and so on. And mm -hmm. so, but I did love the book, at least from the point of view of you know it it raises the the things that you need to think about, uh, or mm -hmm. the the or gives names to the typical sort of changes that you might need to make uh, in databases and think about the process how you might do that. I don't know. Did you happen to see that one, or or yeah. have yeah. you? Hmm, yeah, so I'm, I'm familiar with most of his works. Um, so one thing is he's not a fan of data management or data modeling, and he's mm -hmm. written a few books on those topics. Um, and so he comes at the issue of data at a very uh, code-centric view. So, for yep. instance, in one of his data modeling books, I think Agile Data Modeling, 
He talks about how a social security number is a perfect primary key for a table, and I have mm. full presentations on why that won't why even work. Why that's not a good idea. Not just yeah. not a good idea, but it won't even work. Yeah. Um, but his refactoring book, so refactoring, uh, the theory of refactoring and development, regardless of whether it's databases or code, is making changes to something in a way that never breaks backwards compatibility. That's kind of the gist of it. Yeah, I suppose we should maybe get you to just define refactoring for those that aren't used to that terminology from development. Right. So people use the term just to mean changes. It's not about changes. Mm. So um, refactoring code is something that a developer would do while they're in code, making it better, but it's not applying changes that are functional and it can't the, the theory is is it doesn't break any backwards compatibility as well that's one of the features of it yeah as so you're as, really trying to make improve the quality of the code right without actually changing how it works and that's, and and it's an important thing to be able to do that on an ongoing basis right and and, and so it's another one of those things that sounds really great like that to me is a great goal so refactoring hmm. databases is about applying changes to a database in a way that doesn't break anything else. So Tom LaRock and I actually have a debate presentation that we did at the past summit last year where we actually debate this refactoring thing. And mm-hmm. so we each take one side on it. So I took the pro side on it. And as a project manager, I kind of like this idea about being able to make a change to a database that doesn't require me to go find all the applications, all the reports, all the queries, all the spreadsheets, all the charts that are dependent upon it, get them fixed up before I can make this change. So the example I use is, let's say that we keep, right now we keep track of one email address per customer. Yep. Uh, marketing comes along and says, this doesn't really match the real world any longer, and we want to keep track of multiple email addresses per customer, maybe mm-hmm. um, by you know their preference or by order. So in a traditional data modeling and database design, that's a one-to-many relationship. So traditionally, the way we would solve that is we would now go and create a new table that we hung off customer called customer email address or customer contact method, and we would take email address out of the customer table, put it in this new table along with the customer ID and either some sort of number or date or reason or something, right? And that would make a unique instance of Karen's work email address, Karen's home email address, or something like that. Mm. Um, And that's the right answer. That's the right normalized answer. But in order to make that change, we would be changing the customer table and introducing a new table. We're actually moving where email addresses are stored. And that would break anything that used that table uh, because email address column would no longer be there. And all, anything that ever needed that email address would have to go to this new table. And in an enterprise where you're using lots of systems or addressing, uh, accessing customer data, that's probably going to take a long time before we can um, make changes to all those systems. Heck, in a lot of companies, we wouldn't even know all the systems that use email address. Um, it's really interesting you mention that because <laughs> that is one of my pet reasons why I like to see at least one layer of abstraction inside the database engine. And it's because I go into so many organizations where no one feels like they can ever change anything because they have zero visibility in who's going to scream at them when they make that change. Exactly. So one of the ways that we might address this in refactoring is we might leave email address in the customer table, right? We'd leave that one column in there. 
Mm-hmm. We'd go ahead and create this new table, and we would make sure that that email address was in there, and then we'd continue to add new things. So a new system that was built, say, for the marketing team that kept track of all those email addresses could make use of the new structure, and everything existing would still make track of still make use of the old one. So we'd be violating some data management principles. We'd have intentionally but controlled duplicate data. And then Mm. over time, in a highly disciplined, so these are all the qualifiers, a highly Mm -hmm. disciplined, well-managed data management and development environment, we would then slowly migrate all those other systems and everything to start using the new table. And eventually someone would come in and clean up and then make the final change so that email address mm. was now only in one place. Now, my, my take on it is yeah. that would never happen. Right. So that's, <laughs> yeah. that's Tom's point of view, and that's why it's highly, highly qualified here in a highly disciplined, well-managed, data-managed approach that could happen. Now, as a project manager, I actually would want to see this to work because I don't want to be the one that goes to marketing and say, yeah, we're probably never going to be able to support multiple email addresses or we'll have to do something Mm -hmm. like create a dummy customer for each new email address that points back to the original customer. Or we're going to have to do something like make email address comma delimited and now we've still broken all the old systems. Or you're just going to Mm -hmm. have to wait six months to three years till we rewrite the customer system. Mm -hmm. None of those answers make me happy either. The the thing I love, though, is that had the external code hit a proc Mm -hmm. or had the external code hit a view instead, you could have come up with a decent data model and not have changed the external code. Well, so the reason I use this particular example is I'm not sure views. So when you go from one piece of information about a customer to now having multiples of those, I'm Mm. not sure aliases or views or everything are really going to solve that particular type of problem. Even so, yeah. you could have relayed out the tables and you could, the view that that original thing was hitting. Exactly. You could still have produced that same view. It could right. still be working. Right. But and, the, the, the important thing to me is that you could now still at least have a decent data model that represents reality as, as changes occur without having to have the stagnation of, of not being able to change things because you have, particularly where you have no visibility in what hits it. That's the one that worries me even right. more. Right, and that's why data architects like me, we're big fans of we want to have a real uh, data management, uh, data governance process where we don't, where we do know all the things, you know, we have scanners, we have repositories, we have metadata repositories where we do know what systems are using that email address. And maybe we don't have to go through this big refactoring thing because there is an abstraction layer that allows us to make this change. Um, mm. The other thing is about the views things. Like, that's always been our way of dealing with this. It's just that, again, life gets complicated. So when that one original email address is changed, and we've now got four more, or that one original email address, the customer says, okay, this original email address you had for me, it no longer works. Or let's say it's bouncing and we want to delete it. How do we know which new email address to replace it with? Mm -hmm. So the view thing, once you go from one to many, it makes it more difficult. So the other refactoring thing, though, that is harder for me to kind of get behind is even if you did something like, change the name of the column, which, by the way, as a data modeler, I never think I'm allowed to do that just because Mm -hmm. it's a cost to do that. 
But let's say you want to change the name of that column. What the traditional, what the refactoring people would do is they would not change the name. They'd create a new column with the new name, yep. same data, probably have a trigger to keep track of that. And then they wouldn't get rid of the original column until someone had verified that all the other code had been changed. Yeah. And that's, that sounds nice. You know, I mean, it sounds really nice. But if you multiply that times the hundreds or thousands of column and data and name and structure changes happen uh, in an enterprise, you're, you're going to end yeah. up with thousands and thousands of these extra duplicate yep. uh, columns. It's an incredible paid. mess. Yes. Incredible and, mess. Right? Yeah. And so we we have experience. We know there are ways we could use aliases or something like that. Um, but you can see how this would be very difficult to manage. So I see a lot of the database mm. refactoring that's happening makes sense maybe during a development project where you don't want to stop people's sprints and have them go through their backlog and everything. Mm. But putting this in a in a a very large environment, like one of his points is, you know, storage is free. You know, it doesn't cost a lot to do this. But if you have a table that has a trillion rows and you're adding another 255 character, even though it's variable field, it starts to add up. Yeah, it does. And look, the another interesting approach I'm seeing used uh, in a couple of places now is people are making use of schemas for this. And so what they're doing is they're defining a schema like it's a particular version of a contract and the views and procs that are in that schema are what an application connects to as its yep. schema. Mm -hmm. And then basically all they then have to track um, later on is, is anybody still using that particular, the things that are in that schema? Yeah. And so each new application is designed to use a later, uh, a later version. So it's actually like a versioned schema. And right. again, it's something we don't have like automated support built into the database for sort of versioning of these sorts of things. Right. But again, I thought it was an interesting approach to, to try and use schemas as, as a form of contract. Yeah, I have seen that both with uh, versions, like application versions, as well as development environments, right? Mm. And and it, it just adds a layer of complexity. So everything's yep. a trade-off, not just in performance and design, but how we do our work. Mm. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Listen, one thing um, in terms of now, you're based in Toronto, mm -hmm. and uh, but you have a fascination, I note, with space. <laughs> I and, do. Uh, if, if anybody follows you on Facebook or Twitter, they could not help but know this. That's so. correct. <laughs> so where does that stem from? Oh, wow. So I have this picture I tweet every once in a while of me when I was about 9 or 10 in an astronaut costume. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so definitely grew up in a time, because I'm so experienced, when space and space exploration just was so exciting and, and lots of great things were happening. And I, I had either I or my brother had a, uh, you know, an astronaut lunchbox and, and just all kinds mm -hmm. of astronaut stuff. 
And uh, so that was a childhood thing. And then one of my first jobs out of school was I worked on strategic defense initiative, which involved mm-hmm. a lot of space stuff. I worked at Space Division in Los Angeles, which was an Air Force base. And that was a very exciting time during the shuttle missions. We would, uh, every yep. time there was a launch or a landing, we'd head down to the officers club and watch that. Uh, that was all really exciting. And um, and then kind of got out of that for a while. And then a few years ago, NASA started engaging people in social media to bring them in to get sort of behind-the-scenes looks at what was going on. So I was able to attend a shuttle launch uh, mm-hmm. of Endeavor, which was the second-to-last shuttle launch. And then that just really sort of made me think again about what was going on. So since then, I've attended a lot of these social media things, even for European mm. Space Agency. Uh, I've been to visit the yep. Japanese Space Agency. Uh, I work closely with the I work I I play closely with the Canadian Space Agency, especially since uh, Chris Hatfield's mm. astronaut on the International yes, Space Station indeed. right now, uh, and who's been doing wonderful outreach in social media. And I ah, uh, we watched him. We watched it go across last night. Oh, excellent! Uh, yeah, people. Yes. Yeah, that's my little plug. So the space station uh, orbits the Earth 16 times a day. Uh, so at various points during the year, there are several nights in a row where you can go out and mm-hmm. just, you don't need any equipment. You can just go out and watch the space station and give it a wave. There's even a And you can uh, sign that. up. You can sign up for an email too. So That's right. Uh, that, that's the thing I loved is that, uh, yeah, they just simply send you an email when it's going to be in your area and uh, where it's visible from where you are. So you just pick a city and they send you an email. It's great. They can send you an email. They can send you a tweet. So there's lots. Mm. There was NASA. And they send a a chart. And there's a chart then that shows you the uh, the days and uh, yeah where it'll appear, where it'll disappear, and how long it'll be there for. It's great. That's right. So it it only takes you know depending on what its orbit is, what its path is. You know, it can be a couple of minutes. It can be six or seven minutes across the sky. I just I find Mm. that really amazing that. And you can just go out and see it go across the sky and give it a wave. There's a hashtag ISS wave, <laughs> and then some nice. website tracks that, and you can go see a data visualization that everyone who went outside and gave it a wave. I just oh, outstanding. Yeah, look, I'm really jealous uh, with you getting to see a launch. I have never managed. I didn't. Oh, I won't ever now. I managed to get to see a shuttle launch. I did get to see a landing actually, the second oh. one that came in, uh, wow. and uh, that was really interesting. I was on a course in. Uh, Cupertino area at the time uh, in California and uh, we had driven down to LA for the weekend and uh, it was supposed to land at Edwards Air Force Base Mm -hmm. there and uh, because it was raining they moved it out into the New Mexico desert and I remember originally NASA said, oh, look, sorry, the public can't come. Mm-hmm. And we thought, oh, and so we were so disappointed because right. we were in the area. And we had driven probably halfway back up to San Francisco when uh, uh, the government stepped in and said, oh, no, 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 the public will be allowed to come. Oh. And we went, woohoo. So we turned around and drove <laughs> right out in the middle of the desert. It was just absolutely wonderful. It was that, a, yeah. a really, really interesting thing to see. The thing that impressed me uh, that I'd never really picked up when watching it on TV, it, it sort of looks almost graceful on TV, but I have to say, it comes, to, it came down like a brick. You know, it was like so fast. Um, it's a glider, and, right? You, yeah, that's it. It's a glider, but the thing is, you always see those TV shots, and they're shown from a jet flying beside it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. it's it's really coming down mighty fast, uh, yeah. and and uh, so yeah, it was it was really quite something to see, and uh, yeah. it was interesting the length of the the runway that it was landing on too. Mm-hmm. It was just 
extraordinary and uh, and uh, lots of things at the end that we were making sure it was not going to go past it. That's right. <laughs> no, no matter what. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, and it was it was it was fascinating to watch and look at. Yeah, really sad to see the uh, uh, the program sort of disappear from that. Uh, I, I think it was a, a completely uh, breathtaking and amazing program. It so. is. The launches are great, and I've now I've seen several other types of launches as well. Um, just really exciting stuff. So even though the shuttle yeah. program's gone, we're still sending astronauts up, as well as now starting up commercial flight at mm. flight. So you know, the shuttle program's just being replaced by other types of vehicles. Yeah, I think there's going to be sort of just a constant industry, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think I think it's completely fascinating watching watching where this will all go. So, no, I'm lo- I'm looking forward to seeing it all as, as time goes on. Yeah. So the other exciting um, thing, though, yeah. as I want to say, is there's a big chunk of the sequel family that's also into the spice thing. So it's not just oh, me. Yeah. I, I mean, there's probably more than a dozen that have participated either in these NASA events or gone to watch launches or landings or any of those things. So I find that a nice overlap of interest. Yeah. In fact, the uh, the one that I'm absolutely kicking myself on, I was in Orlando uh, when one of the the recent launches occurred a couple of years back. Uh, mm-hmm. TechEd was there. Oh, it yeah. was finishing Friday afternoon and the launch was Friday afternoon oh. and I did not know that. Oh. Uh, and, and of course, I was at the airport uh, <laughs> on my way out and I couldn't change my flight at that point. Oh. I thought, oh, I yeah. can't believe it's on over... Yeah, not that far away, and here I am at the airport on my That's way back right. to Australia. I was like so sad when I, yeah. <laughs> I realised how it was. So, yes, yeah, so I didn't actually manage to get to see one of those, but mm. yeah, look, I, I had a, a major respect for that stuff. I, I have spent a lot of time going through, obviously, the Air and Space Museum and visiting mm-hmm. Houston and, oh, and, yeah. and just places and stuff. Yeah, you know, I've been, I, I just love the stuff. Yeah, it's a, and um, the thing that intrigues me is the people that almost thought it was safe, you know, in some way. And, mm-hmm. and still, I look at that stuff and, you know, these guys are brave, you know. Like, yeah. um, it, it, there's just nothing could ever be safe about that. I know. At the moment, yeah. So <laughs> it's exactly. It's a long way off being it's, safe, yeah. It's been a good learning lesson just from project management skills, like reading about yeah. the things that they deal with, you know, at a massive scale compared to, we think our projects are complex. Um, mm. Just reading and reading lessons learned because of failures, and and reading how they deal with readiness reviews and and those kind of things, you know, some mm. of us can adopt some of those processes. Uh, not quite the same as what NASA or any of the other agencies do, mm. but it really does talk about, you know, how like the culture of making decisions and everything. I've learned quite a bit mm. from that too. Actually, speaking of uh, government data um, becoming available and so on, I also I note you have an interest in the open data movement. I do, um, mostly because I feel, again, so I'm data chick on Twitter, so all things data mm-hmm. I find interesting. And open data you know, is a push for publicly generated data. The data that we paid to collect should be made not just available back to the public and back to researchers and to organizations, but also in standardized formats to enable them to be consumed on a regular basis. So even though it's been a... a you know, a long-term thing with Freedom of Information Acts and, and other kinds of things to provide information. The way it used to work is you had to call up some organization and say, I'm interested in finding out about all the parking tickets that were generated over the last two years. And they'd come back to you and say, well, that's going to cost us, 
$25,000 to generate a report for you, how would mm-hmm. you like to pay? And you'd get yep. usually paper reports. <laughs> or yeah. and, and now with open data and with the work that's being done there is not only do you not have to make a request, I mean, those, those vehicles still exist, but governments and agencies are providing this data just automatically, and what they're finding out is it's cheaper, it's less expensive for them to do it that way than to respond to all the requests because the requests yeah. require a privacy review, a legal review, a security review, and now they can curate this data and provide it in a way uh, in fairly open formats. And the big struggle that organizations are going with now is which formats and how to make them most consumable. Mm. But there are yeah, I think that's, efforts. that's that's one thing I was going to say. I'll put a link in the show notes to the yeah. Open Data website, uh, the Open Government one. See, yeah. uh, I find a lot of folk working in SQL when I talk to them are just not even aware that these sites exist. Yeah. So uh, certainly data.gov is is the sort of grandfather of, of all of those ones. And at the moment it has, for the last time I looked, it was nearly 400,000 data sets wow. uh, on the US. So it, it really has almost everything you can possibly imagine wanting to know about the country. Uh, yeah. But it's also also worth noting that I think that's now pushed out into quite a lot of other countries. I know we right. have data.gov.au uh, and certainly you know, when I look around New Zealand, Singapore, so on, uh, various European ones, there, there are, and Canada is another one. Yep. Um, in fact, there are lots of these open government sites. Now, some of them are in their infancy. Um, yep. When I look at the Australian one, I think it's still only in maybe a 1,000 or 2,000 sort of data sets. Um, but I think the thing that people don't get, though, is... Governments collect an amazing amount of what we'd almost consider trivia, but but they deal with it and process it. And I think it's really desirable to get them to put all that information in a, in a single spot. Yep. Yeah, it is, and uh, and it's it's governments. It's now other organizations are putting you know non governmental uh, organizations putting data out there that can be shared, um, and and you just don't you know. You just don't understand. It's hundreds and thousands of data sets. So even people come to me and they're like, I, I, want, I need some data for a demo. You know, you got mm. to get to, okay, point them to data.gov just because. And say, go for it. Yeah, go for it. Do some like... searching. But then drawing back to my passion, you know, you can go to data.nasa.gov and get some really mm-hmm. exciting data that would make a great, uh, you know, where you're mashing up space data against White House data against weather yep. data versus uh, crime statistics and and all of these things that uh, right now there should be no reason anyone should be missing out on some sort of demonstration data or even open open data that they can use in their applications and, and one that yeah. that I make use of a lot is is weather data that can be used in a mm-hmm. lot of analytics. There's a lot of business functions like I have a background in retail and weather sometimes is a bigger indicator of how well a promotion is going to do than how great the promotion was when it comes yes. to actually going into a bricks-and-mortar store. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful point. Uh, if I look at the Australian data at the moment, it's still kind of limited. They have things like uh, some of the state crime statistics. They have uh, uh, all sorts of taxation-related data and so on. Um, one I love is they have the National Public Toilet Map. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I thought it was excellent. And the uh, another is they have uh, the location of public barbecues in the in the excellent. ACT, one of our territories. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's just yeah, I think people underestimate the level of data that governments collect. It's it really is something. And, right. uh, and, and we yeah, all having a spot for, for that. 
Yeah, we all paid for it in the first place to be collected and processed. But I suppose the key thing there, though, is that when you get to those sites, the format of the data, I mean, it's one thing to have one spot where it all lives, but, yeah, there is a big variety of, you know, here's a spreadsheet, here's a zip file, yeah. here's a, and so on. And I think this is the next real challenge. It, there's that. So there's format. So we all know that even if we declare that all data shall be provided in XML format, that doesn't necessarily make it any more usable to us. Mm. So one of the things, like it's the classic data sharing, data integration issue, is that there's format, and then there is what is the meaning of the data. So again, we come back yeah. to, you know, what is a customer? What is a citizen? What is a resident? You know, in one data set, a resident might be someone who just, you know, that's their, what they've said is their residence, their address. But from mm. citizenship and immigration purposes, a visitor isn't a resident. So they might not be listed or they might be listed differently. Um, the, the open data stuff that I'm interested in is solving that next problem of it's not enough. At first, we have to share the data and we have to put them in consumable formats that are easier to share, like XML, like comma delimited, like flat files, less embedded into formatted spreadsheets or PDFs or Word documents. Um, and, and trying to come up with standards for sharing. So now even within the U.S., there are some uh, bodies that focus just on helping organizations share data, not from the technical point of view, but coming to agreements on what they mean and how they should be used. Mm. And, and one of the organizations that uh, focus came out of the events after 9-11 because in the U.S., uh, jurisdictions had a terrible time trying to share data. They had technical exchange issues, like actually connectivity issues. And then yep. they started to try to change, share information, and they realized, you know, just emailing spreadsheets around isn't good enough. And, and so they came up with an organization uh, called NEAM for the National Information Exchange Model for sharing data among uh, municipal, state, and federal agencies. And now they're expanding beyond to international borders so that they can help organizations share. I think that's going to be the toughest thing is, you know, first we solve the problem of making it accessible, then in a proper format, and then having to understand the meaning. And that last part is going to be the hardest part. Yeah. No, lovely. And so, listen, you're also actively involved in social networking. So, yeah. um, <laughs> so we'll put, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, your sort of Twitter yep. account. Uh, other places that people will find you? Oh, my gosh, everywhere. So Facebook mm. and LinkedIn, and I can share those with you if you don't have them. But, um, you know, I'm kind of old school, too. I still hang out in some forums and mailing lists mm -hmm. and those sort of things. Uh, but primarily on Twitter. I'm over, I think, 100,000 yep. 100, tweets in my lifetime, and that was after Twitter lost about 20,000 of them a couple of years ago. So mm -hmm. um, let's just say I'm active in it. Oh, that that'll raise a discussion on data governance for another day. <laughs> but uh, yeah, indeed. So, look, is there anywhere you mentioned the last past summit and so on? But uh, where will people see you up in upcoming times? Oh my goodness! Well, I do a lot of SQL Saturdays. I just love going mm -hmm. and meeting people uh, in their local environments. Um, and I'll definitely. I'm speaking at Enterprise Data World, which is coming up in a few weeks in San Diego. Now, that's mostly from the mm -hmm. data management point of view. Uh, yep. That's a, a conference focused on data architecture and business intelligence, data modeling, uh, some NoSQL type stuff, and emerging trends. 
And that conference mm-hmm. has been going on. I think I've been going to it for about 16 years in a row. So that's yep. definitely a community of mine. And um, I think that's about it, SQL Saturday. No, yeah. that's great. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, thank you so very much for your time today, Karen. Thank you. It's been, you had some great questions. It's been nice chatting with you. Indeed. Lovely. Thanks a lot.